0: New as the church, so if you're new, uh, we're pretty new here too. This particular series comes from the book of Ruth, and so if you have a Bible, if you brought a Bible this morning, you can turn in the book of Ruth, I will meet you there at the book of Ruth in just a moment. Um, I've, always, I've always loved great stories, and uh, Ruth is a great story. It's not to say that it's not true, or it's not to say that it's not historical, because it is, it's both, it's both true and historical, but at the same time, it's, it's just a tremendous story, the book of Ruth. Um, It has surprises and plot twists, and it has turns that you don't see coming, which makes it a lot of fun. But it also has things happening in it that makes it feel very modern and very urban. There are interracial friendships in this uh, story. There is an interracial marriage in this story. There are women who are trying to survive in a male-dominated culture uh, in this story. There's romance. There's mystery. I I, I think you're going to absolutely love this book. And In fact, I think you're going to love this book so much that you're going to be tempted to read ahead. Uh, don't. That's right, I'm saying it. Don't read your Bible. Don't want you to read ahead uh, in this series. Ruth is a tremendously hopeful book because in this book, God unveils more of his plan to rescue the world through the Jewish people. Let me just give you a little context about that. Right after the fall of man, back in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, Almost immediately after that, God begins to speak of a plan to rescue the world. And it's going to come through, the rescuer of the world is going to be a descendant of Eve, which is great. That's great that there's a plan, uh, but the problem is that uh, descendants of Eve, is that's a pretty broad range, right? I mean, we're all descendants of Eve. Well, by Genesis chapter 12, God begins to narrow down who this possible rescuer of the world is going to be. And he says he's going to come through, it's going to be a descendant of Abraham, which is good, that's good news. By the book of Ruth, though, God begins to narrow it down a little more, who this rescuer, who this Messiah of the world is going to be. We know he's going to come through Eve, we know he's going to, he's going to be a descendant of Abraham, and then now we learn in the book of Ruth that this particular Messiah is going to come through the line Well, hang on, that's part of the surprise of the book, and I'm not going to tell you. You have to wait until the end of the book. You'll learn more about it then. What I want to do is I want to go ahead this morning, and I want to jump into the text, Ruth chapter 1. Let's start reading from verse 1, and I want you to just, uh, let's pay attention to the first five verses, Ruth chapter 1, verse uh, 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem does that name sound familiar, Bethlehem? Just pay attention to that. You guys, anybody remember a Christmas song that we sing? That it goes something like, "Oh, little town of." I mean, it sounds better than that. But do you know what, what's the sound? What's the town? Okay, so just pay attention to that. That's important. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while. In the country of Moab, the man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Notice that was the second time that Bethlehem was mentioned there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malin and Killian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and uh, without her husband. I think you would agree, as we start reading this book, those first five verses, uh, there are a couple confusing things about those verses. The first is the title of the book is Ruth, but it starts with Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi. And my only explanation for that is, isn't life always about the mother-in-law? But we can go on. The second thing that's confusing, probably about this, is that it's a pretty—it's uh, a pretty bleak start. Would you agree? It's a pretty bleak start to a book that is supposed to be so hopeful. Uh, in fact, there's bleakness all over these first five verses. The bleakness begins right off the, I mean, just right off the bat. It says, notice that phrase, it says, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, I know that's a pretty obscure reference to most of us, but what it's referring to is a time of incredible societal bleakness in the nation of Israel uh, at the time. If you'll just jump back, jump back one verse in your Bible, just one verse, go from go from the first verse of Ruth to the last book of the book of, uh, of Judges, just go right there, last verse of the book of Judges, and... Uh, that it'll make it clear a little more about what's going on here in this phrase uh, in those days, uh, in the days when the judges ruled. Last verse, uh, it's chapter 21, verse 25. Can you put it up there? It says, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Now, how would you like to live in a culture in which everyone just did what he or she thought was right in her own, his or her own eyes? How would you like to live in that culture? It's moral relativism, by the way. And moral relativism had taken the nation of Israel to a place of devastating social decay. And that's what he's trying to describe here, the author. He's trying to say, in the days when the judges were ruled, he's trying to give us a sense of what it was like. Well, it was a time of of enormous uh, spiritual and societal darkness. The other thing that's the other thing that's very bleak about this particular passage is that it speaks to us about economic bleakness as well in the nation of Israel at the time. It says, says that there was a famine uh, in the land. Uh, a famine had driven people to grinding poverty in Israel at the time. In fact, this particular family, uh, the father of whom is, is uh, Elimelech, uh, had had to sell his ancestral land uh, just to be able to survive, and still this family is living in extreme poverty and then, as if, as if that 's not enough, there is this staggering emotional bleakness for this family as well. Did you see that? This young family they again, they, they leave their ancestral land if you 've ever relocated from one place to another, you know how incredibly difficult that is, right? They leave family, uh, they leave friends. They are probably hoping just to sojourn in Moab for a short period of time, at least until the rains come and the crops return, but the rains don't come and the crops don't return. And one year turns into two, and two years turns into three, and eventually the text tells us that they had been there for ten years. And during that ten-year period, ironically, the family experiences the very thing that they left Israel hoping to avoid, death the husband dies, and then a son dies, and then another son dies. And the text says that Naomi is left without family. And there was no more vulnerable position for a woman in that culture to find herself in than without a man to provide for her. Because remember, in that day and age, there was no insurance. She couldn't get a job. Uh, It was a male-dominated culture. Uh, she was in an absolutely vulnerable position, no man to provide for her. My point Here's my point in just telling you about all of that bleakness. My point is that for a book that's supposed to be so hopeful, none of what we've seen so far seems very hopeful. Would you agree? In fact, it seems like the opposite of hopeful. It seems extremely bleak. And what I want to do is I, I just want to stop for a moment, and I want to let all of that sink in. And I'd just like to ask you to try to put yourself this morning, just try to put yourself in Naomi's shoes. Uh, What would you have been feeling if you were Naomi? Would you have been, well, let me just ask that again. What would you have been feeling? Let me just let you linger on that for another moment. What would you have been feeling? You got to understand Naomi, as as a Jewish woman, and she 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 was well acquainted with all the stories of Israel's history. Like she was well acquainted with the fact she knew the story of Abraham and Sarah and how how God had miraculously made it very had made it possible for this old man and this old woman to have a, a child in their old age. She knew that story, and she knew all the stories about how God had parted the Red Sea miraculously for the people of Israel, and how he parted the Jordan River for them, and and she knew about all the miraculous victories that Israel had experienced at Jericho. And so you can imagine, right, that Naomi prays as each one of these family members gets sick. You you can just imagine that she prays accordingly. God, uh, please, I know you're able to do anything. Would you please deliver my husband? Uh, But her husband wasn't healed. And he dies, and she is left a widow. And then when her son takes ill, she's like, God, I know you can do this. I mean, there's nothing too hard for you. You, You've parted seas. Please deliver my son. And her son dies. And then her third son takes ill, and she's like, God, this can't be. Don't let this happen. I, I can't lose everyone in my family. Please come through. You can do it. And the third son dies. And I just wonder, if you were in Naomi's shoes, would you have felt in that moment like you're an important part of a hopeful drama in which God is unveiling his plan to rescue the world? Or would you have felt abandoned by God? Wondering what in the world that he is doing with all of this supposed power that he has if he couldn't even rescue one member of your family. And maybe you would have even begun to wonder, is he good Maybe you would have even begun to wonder, does he even exist? There's this, um, some of you guys are familiar with the um, Irish-American playwright Eugene O'Neill, and he, one of his particular plays, it was called A Long Day's Journey in the Night, and O'Neill had this uh, characteristic tendency that he would, he would he would often write his characters into extreme tragedy and then he would let them as a result of the tragedy he would let them slide into great despair and disillusionment and he has one particular character in this in this play a long day's journey the night has one particular character that that does experience this extreme tragedy and then near the end of her life she utters this a powerful statement i want you to listen to this she says None of us, this is, this is a character that he has, he says, she says, none of us can help the things life has done to us. They are done before you realize it, and once they are done, they make you do other things until at last everything comes between you and what you'd like to be, and you've lost your true self Forever. I doubt most people that are sitting in churches this morning would admit it, but I, I wonder if that kind of despair isn't an accurate description of what's coursing through most people's minds, at least many people's minds, when they look back over their lives and look back over the suffering that they've experienced. And, and I, I wonder how many of you might even be feeling that kind of despair this morning. You're trying to keep the faith through some dark night of the soul, but you're living on the sloping back of a question mark. And the question is, God, where are you and what are you doing? Are you there? Are you real? Do you care? Why is all of this happening to me? And I wonder, you know, when we go to a passage like this, I wonder, what can we learn from Naomi's suffering that could help us when the bottom falls out of our lives? I mean, what, what hope does the gospel give us when we suffer? Because it's an important question because everyone here, everyone here right now, everyone here is either on the precipice of suffering or you're in the middle of suffering or you're coming out of suffering. Uh, I know many people in this room right now who are going through suffering or who have just come out of it, and then there may be some of you that tomorrow when you wake up, you're going to be there. What what can we take from Naomi's story that might get us through uh, another day? I, I, I want to give you two encouragements this morning from Naomi's suffering. And and this first one, it, at first, it's not going to feel like an encouragement, okay? Let me just tell you that right off the bat. At first, it's not going to seem like an encouragement, but it is, okay? Watch this. One of life's Uh, I think one of life's greatest and consequentially uh, most difficult lessons about suffering is learned in in just a very short phrase in verse 3. Did you look back at verse 3? The text says now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. Um, Hello. Seriously? That's it? No explanation as to why he died or why all of this had to happen. Here's the point. Here's the point. Events take place in this life that cannot be understood nor their purpose comprehended. But in all things, God remains in sovereign control. There's the point. That little phrase gives us nothing except the facts. And sometimes that's what life feels like, right? Suffering tragedy hits, and it doesn't seem like there's any explanation. But in all things, God remains in sovereign control. I have to admit to you that I kind of left you in a difficult place this morning by stopping at verse 5. Just read the first five verses. That's it. The reason I did that is that I wanted you to feel what Naomi felt when this happened. I wanted you to feel her despair, but I also wanted you to feel her blindness about what was still to come in the future. Because you're in a position this morning as you encounter this text, or for people who might be listening on the podcast, you're, you're in a position that you have to take me at my word that God remains in sovereign control in spite of what's happened to Naomi so far in this book because you haven't read the rest of the book of Ruth. And you're not going to read the rest of the book of Ruth until we get to it, are you? Because you're not going to read ahead in your Bibles, are you? Everybody say no. That didn't sound convincing. You don't know what's going to happen because you haven't read it, but isn't that what life feels like when the bottom falls out? Like, You can't see your future. When the bottom falls out of your life, you don't know what's coming, do you? And you have to trust God. You've got to take him at his word that he's still in control, don't you? Now, I will tell you that if you knew what I know about the rest of the book of Ruth, you would realize that while the clouds are temporarily hiding his face... Those clouds are not blocking out God's loving kindness nor his working of of this situation for good in Naomi's life. Believe it or not, there is hope that's going to come out of this despair. Believe it or not, from the famine that drove them into Moab to the unexpected death of her husband to the untimely death of her two sons in the story, God has been using all of this to bring Naomi exactly to the place that she needed to be for him to fulfill his ultimate purpose for her life. That's all going to happen in the book of Ruth but you don't know it yet. Just like in whatever the situation is that you came in here with this morning, you have no idea how it's going to all work out. Sometimes when life looks hopeless, you have to, we have to remind ourselves over and over, and I, I don't have this on a slide, but you might want to write this down somewhere, that it, it, it's, it's really what I said a moment ago. I'm just putting it in a little shorter form. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves over and over that our circumstances, though not always explainable, are not random. I'll say that again. We have to remind ourselves sometimes that our circumstances, though not always explainable, are not random. There is purpose in all of it. Now, I'm going to tell you guys a story that I'm, you're going to trust, you're gonna have to trust me on this. You're going to have to trust my motives on this. I am not telling this story to be mean. I'm not telling this story to be spiteful. I'm not telling this story to live in the past. I'm telling this story because I think that there may be some of you here this morning that don't know much about my story. And um, I want you to know that what I'm talking about this morning, I don't speak from an ivory tower about. I want you to know that I know what it's like to experience disorienting, disorienting suffering. And um, so I'm going to tell you the story. Some of you know this story. In fact, it was a year ago this month that it all started. My family and I moved from Dallas. Um, I'd lived there 27 years. My My wife had lived there her whole life. Our kids had lived in Dallas their whole life. We came here to Evansville to pastor another church here in Evansville, and I had been commuting back and forth uh, between Evansville and Dallas for eight months. After a meeting with the leadership of the church to make sure that they felt like I was doing a good job and to make sure that I was safe to move my family here, to sell our home there, and to purchase a home here, Uh, after... You know, having a meeting, making sure everything was okay. We uprooted our lives in Dallas, and we uh, uprooted our kids' lives in Dallas and moved them here to Evansville. Uh, but three weeks after moving, the same, that very same leadership team, with the exception of three men, um, that very same leadership team suddenly decided that they didn't want us, and they fired us. I hadn't even finished turning in receipts from the move yet when they, when they fired us. It was late at night when I finally got the news. And as I was driving home, I called Amy from the car and told her the news. And we were both uh, stunned and shocked and confused and disoriented. The boys were asleep. And so um, we had them get up for a family meeting and told them, uh, about the news that I had been fired, and they were deeply stunned and confused they 'd only been to the church three times, so they <laughs> they, they didn 't really know much about the church, but they were confused and we, we had to reassure them that uh, I had not had an affair uh, that uh, <laughs> that i hadn 't embezzled money uh that you know there weren 't any moral issues that we we didn 't have any idea why it had happened, but we you know we had not done something. And we, we were just absolutely stunned. What, what, we didn't know what to do next. You know, Do we move to Dallas? Do we stay here in Evansville? Do did we, we didn't have any idea. And there were no signs in the sky, no signs in the heavens telling us what to do. We were just absolutely dumbfounded and confused. Got a text a few days later somebody said, have you seen the paper? Because there's an article in the paper about all of this, and everyone and their brother is weighing in online about it, and there were people that were trying to online, they were trying to figure out where we were, and some said that we were back in Dallas, and somebody spotted us at the airport, uh, uh, getting on a plane to go to Dallas, and some said we left town and didn't tell anybody where we were. We were just in Newburgh, man, that's all. (laughs) We were just in Newburgh, wondering what the heck had just happened to our lives, and feeling the whole range of emotions that anybody would have been feeling. But in the back of our minds, Amy and I just kept trying to remind ourselves and each other and our boys that while none of this made sense to us, we just had to keep reminding ourselves that it wasn't random. That somehow, somewhere, God was still in control and that he had purpose in this event that we might not even know, and we just kept telling ourselves. And sometimes, sometimes I was full of faith, and I would tell Amy, you know, God is still in control. And then sometimes I had no faith, and she was telling me, God is still in control. And sometimes we were telling each other together, and maybe even our boys sometimes might have even had to tell us at times, you know, that God was in control. But we just kept at it. We just kept reminding ourselves of that over and over and over again. A year later, it gets easier. it gets easier, especially when we see what God is doing in a place like city church that just gets a lot easier. It really does. But I will tell you that we still wonder sometimes, why did all of that have to happen is Is that what God wanted? Did he want to get city church started all along is that Is that what he originally wanted to have happen? Did we miss something in the candidating process that we should have seen? Should we never have moved here to begin with? Was Is that part of the problem? And, and, and here's the answer. Here's the answer. Here's the answer to all those questions. I have no answer. <laughs> and I might never have an answer to any of that. Just as Naomi must have been wondering, God, what? what how could all of this have happened? What, Did we sin? Was it wrong for us to leave Israel and come to Egypt? And um, did we not have enough faith? And she has no answer. Now I want you to know I truly don't tell that story. I'm not trying to rehash old news. I I hope I promise you I'll never tell that story again here. But um, I'll tell the story again somewhere. But I won't tell it again here. I don't want to rehash old wounds, and I'm not trying to surface uh, old wounds in any way. I, I just tell you all of that to say I know personally how hopeless things can look sometimes, and how in those situations you have to just preach to yourself and remind yourself over and over and over again that our circumstances, though not always explainable, are not random. They're not random. There's purpose in this. God remains in sovereign control even though it feels like the bottom of your life has just fallen out from underneath you. In Psalm 11, David, uh, who's the king of Israel, is writing about a particularly devastating time in his own life. And I just want you to read just a couple of lines from Psalm 11. He asks this question. He He says, when the foundations... And, and ask you, know, you might feel like the foundations of your life right now are being destroyed. He says, when the foundations are being destroyed, he asks the question, what can the righteous do? And it's an interesting answer. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. Just leave that verse there for a moment, if you would, Blake. It's a fascinating question, isn't it? When the foundations of your life are being destroyed, what can you do? Notice that the next line really doesn't answer that question. Because sometimes there's nothing you can do. It's like it's happening to you, and there's not a single thing that you can do about it. Except to remind yourself that the Lord is in His holy temple, and He's seated on His heavenly throne, and He is not caught by surprise by what's going on in your life, and He's still working. And that your circumstances, though not always explainable, are not random. Isn't that the truth? Sometimes there's not a thing you can do except remind yourself of that truth. That's my first encouragement to you. Keep preaching to yourself over and over that your circumstances, though not always explainable, like we will see in the book of Ruth, um, they're not random. They're not random. Okay, here's my second encouragement, and this one will be quicker. I promise you this will be quicker. be quicker. I'm trying to see if I can tell what time it is. Okay, here we go. Quicker. This will be quicker. We get, this, we get this encouragement from the context of Ruth, but we also get it from the whole Bible. And it's one of the great promises of the gospel. And some of you are going to say to me, I already know this. You didn't need to spend any time talking about it today. I know, it's, I know you know it, and I know, it's, I know it, it can sound very cliche to say it. But look. If you're suffering this morning, you need to know this. It is one of the great promises of the Bible. Turn, If you have a Bible, just turn real quickly in it to the New Testament book of Romans. Some of you know where I'm going. Turn to the New Testament book of Romans, chapter 8 and verse 28. And I just want to say this. The bad things in our life turn out for good. That's my second encouragement to you this morning, that the bad things in our life Turn out for good. And I want you to just look at Romans eight twenty eight. You know this verse. Some of you know this verse. But let's just read it together. And we know that in all things... In fact, would you read it out loud with me today? Would you read it? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him who have been called according to his purpose. This is one of the great promises of the gospel. And I want you to notice three quick things. I mean, these are going to be real fast, I promise you. The first is I want you to notice that in that phrase, that it says, in all things, all things. Okay, just that phrase, all things. Here's my point. All things happen to Christians. And this is a surprise to some people. Um, this passage of Scripture, Romans eight twenty eight, reminds us that the circumstances of a Christian are no better than anyone else's. Many Christians explicitly teach and some implicitly believe that if you love and serve Christ that you won't have as many bad things happen to you. Let me tell you something. Not true. All things that happen to other people also happen to Christ's followers. The trouble is that we are often so taken off guard, we are so surprised when we go through suffering that we're just thrown off balance. If you're going through suffering this morning, do not be surprised by that. It happens to followers of Christ. Okay, second thing I want you to notice, second phrase in that verse, Romans 8, 28, I want you to notice It, it says, in all things, God works together for good. Here's my point. When things work together for good in your life, it's because of God. When things work together for good in your life, it's because of God. Notice that the text, Romans eight twenty eight does not say things work together for good. You know why? Because things never work together for good on their own. It is one of the basic laws of thermodynamics that in a fallen world, things fall apart if they're left to themselves. Look, if my yard looks good this morning, it's because I've been working on it. Left to itself, it'll be a jungle. In the same way, if things come together in this life for good, it is because God is bringing it all together. And we're going to see that happen in the book of Ruth clearly. It's the work of God bringing hope out of despair. Everything that goes well in your life is a miracle of grace. The promise of the gospel for Christ's followers is that God will take all of the bad things that happen in your life and he will bring them together. He will work to bring them together for good. It's not that they're good in and of themselves. When bad things happen, Christianity doesn't give us a saccharine sweet view of life. It doesn't say, well, the bad things are really good. No, it doesn't say that at all. It says when those bad things happen... God will work them together for good. It will be a miracle of God's grace that he does it. But he will take the bad thing that was legitimately bad, and he will make it good somehow. Third thing, I want you to notice also in Romans 8.28, I want you to notice, all all things God works them together for good for those who love him. But I want you to notice there is no time frame in which he will do that. There is no time frame in Romans 8.28 The fact that Romans 8.28 is a promise to you does not mean that you will have an answer about why this thing happened, why this suffering that you're going through happened. You won't get it in a day. You might not get it in a week. You might not get it in a month. You might not get it in a year. And you might not get it for a whole lifetime. The promise of God in Romans 8.28 is that God will work for good those things that have happened in your life. He will work them for good in the totality of your life. That's the promise. That's the promise. If you're here this morning and you have been suffering, you need to know that your circumstances are not random. You need to preach that to yourself. And you need to preach to yourself as well that God somehow is going to take this And he's going to work it together for good. Because that's what God does. That's what God specializes in, bringing hope out of death. We're going to see it in Naomi's life. What's fascinating, though, as I read this story of the book of Ruth, is that not only do we see it happen in Naomi's life, but we see it most clearly at the cross of one who was born in Naomi's hometown. We see it at the cross of one who was born in the same town that Naomi's husband was born in and who died. We see it at the cross of another son whose life was taken too soon, Jesus Christ. After his own gruesome death, He spent three long nights in a grave and during those three nights I can imagine that his disciples were discouraged and distraught and depressed and probably wondering if we wasted our time, if we'd just been following another false Messiah and then all of a sudden out of nowhere, three days later, the grave gives up its dead and death is swallowed up in victory. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the promise to you who are followers of Christ. That your death's will be swallowed up in victory. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? I'm going to say a word of prayer. Michael's going to come up and sing us a song to close us out today. Lord, I just pray for those that are here this morning that are suffering. I, I can only imagine what they're feeling. I can only imagine what it's like wondering where you are and why you haven't done something in the midst of their suffering, why you've let it happen. And Lord, we uh, just, I pray with great compassion on uh, those that are suffering this morning. Lord, I pray that you would take these truths that we have seen this morning and I pray that you would use them as encouragements. Some of these truths are not, um, oh, they're not, They're not terribly new to some folks in the room, but Lord, sometimes it's just those, uh, sometimes those are the most powerful. We have a way of turning them into cliches, that's for sure, Lord, but, but sometimes the truths are powerful in and of themselves, and I pray that you would encourage us this morning. Lord, we pray for hope and that you would bring hope out of despair, and we thank you that you specialize that. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.